from the ashes this is homie Romy. i am pleased to be back on the air with you today um i know it's been a few months since we've been uh dropping some fresh content well today is a um fun and fantastic piece in which i am very pleased to share with you the full transcript the Philip K. Dick speech at the Metz Science Fiction Convention in France, 1977. Now, you see, in 1977, when Philip K. Dick was ready to bring this philosophy, this idea, this world in which he experienced to public, it was a big deal. To him, And as you listen, I'm sure you will understand why. If you are familiar with the life of Philip K. Dick and what happened to him in his later life after 24 years of writing science fiction, then you surely will understand. And you most likely have heard this. But the great thing about this, my friends, is this is the full transcript, the full speech that he wrote for that. What a lot of people don't know is that the speech itself was trimmed down about two-thirds to fit into the time slot that they had at the science convention, science fiction convention. So um, I was trying to clean up the audio. I wanted to make you know something fun with Philip K. Dick's voice and doing the speech and try to make like you know some cool beats or music behind it or whatever but every time I try to clean up the audio it just was not good it was just not crisp enough and the content was so juicy I was like fuck what do I do (laughs) so I was like I guess I have to read it myself so I found the transcript and when I was reading it I realized that this is not the speech he was he was telling well it is but it's the full speech so um I was really happy when we found that because it uh, it gives a lot more context than the speech that he gave at the science fiction convention, right? Like, it's it's one thing to tell a great and fantastic speech, but it's another thing to tell half of it because someone wants you to strip it down. Well, it's like, hey, guy, I'm trying to tell, you know, the world about this incredibly deep, uh, you know, personal experience that I had in this new philosophy I have about reality and you want me to trim it down to try to fit your time slot <laughs> all right so that's that's kind of what happened and um, so here we are uh, traversing the realm with Philip K. Dick and I won't waste your guys's time any longer I just want to thank you for tuning in I would love to hear your feedback on this please please comment please hit me up at rising from the ashes at Proton, oh, sorry, rising from the ashes pod at protonmail.com. The link will be in the uh, show notes. Um, reach out. Uh, I love you guys so much. 
Uh, can't wait to hear from you guys and uh, look forward to doing more shows. Watch out for the feed. We will have uh, some new stuff coming up. And until then, you know, if you haven't checked out Vallis by Philip K. Dick, you have to. Okay? It's a, it's, you need to. If it's not in your bookshelf, it needs to be. I'm telling you, this is an incredible piece of work. It's amazing. Just do it. You want to get the trilogy or the... It's actually technically four bucks if you consider Radio Free Album Muth to that. Um, but anywho, here's the transcript um, read by myself of Philip K. Dick. If you find this world bad, you should see some of the others. 1977 May I tell you how much I appreciate your asking me to share some of my ideas with you. A novelist carries with him constantly what most women carry in large purses. Much of that is useless. A few absolutely essential items and then, for good measure, a great number of things that fall in between. But the novelist does not transport them physically because his trove of possessions is mental. Now and then he adds a new and entirely useless idea. Now and then he reluctantly cleans out the trash, the obviously worthless ideas, and with a few sentimental tears sheds them. Once in a great while, however, he happens by chance onto a thoroughly stunning idea new to him that he hopes will turn out to be new to everyone else. It is this final category that dignifies his existence. But such truly priceless ideas, perhaps during his lifetime, he may at best acquire only a meager few. But that is enough. He has, through them, justified his existence to himself and to his God. An odd aspect of these rare, extraordinary ideas that puzzles me is their mystifying cloak of, shall I say, the obvious. By that I mean, once the idea has emerged or appeared or been born, however, it is that new ideas pass over into being, the novelist says to himself, but of course, why didn't I realize that years ago? But note the word realize, it is the key word. He has come across something new that at the same time was there somewhere, all the time. In truth, it simply surfaced, it always has. He did not invent it or even find it. A very real sense it found him and this is a little frightening to contemplate he has not invented it but on the contrary it invented him it is, uh, it is as if the idea created him for its purposes I think this is why we discover a startling phenomenon of great renown 
that quite often in history, a great new idea strikes a number of researchers or thinkers at exactly the same time, all of them oblivious to their compeers. Its time had come. We say about the idea and so dismiss as if we had explained it, something I consider quite important, our recognition that in a certain literal sense ideas are alive. What does this mean to say that an idea or thought is literally alive and that it seizes on men here and there and makes use of them to actualize itself into a stream of human history? Perhaps the pre-Socratic philosophers were correct. The cosmos is one vast entity that thinks. It may in fact do nothing but think. In that case, either what we call the universe is merely a form of disguise that it takes, or it somehow is the universe, some variation on this pantheistic view, my favorite being that it cunning, cunningly mimics the world that we experience daily, and we remain none the wiser. This is the view of the oldest religion of India, and to some extent it was the view of Spinoza and Alfred North Whitehead, the concept of an eminent God, God within the universe, not transcendent above it, and therefore not a part of it. The Sufi saying, the workman is invisible within the workshop, applies here. With workshop is universe and workman is God, but this still expresses the theistic notion that the universe is something that God created, whereas I am saying perhaps God created nothing but merely is. And we spend our lives within him or her or it, wondering constantly where he or she or it can be found. I enjoyed thinking along these lines for several years. God is as near at hand as the trash in the gutter. God is the trash in the gutter, to speak more precisely. But then, one day a wicked thought entered my mind. Wicked, because it undermined my marvelous pantheistic monism, of which I was so proud. What if, and here, you will see how at least this particular science fiction writer gets his plots. What if there exists a plurality of universes arranged along a sort of lateral axis, which is to say, at right angles to the flow of linear time? I must admit that upon thinking this, I found I had conjured up a terrific absurdity. Ten thousand bodies of God arranged like so many suits hanging in some enormous closet, with God either wearing them all at once or going selectively back and forth among them, saying to himself, I think today I'll wear one, which Germany and Japan won World War II. And then, adding half to himself, tomorrow I'll wear the nice one, in which Napoleon defeated the British. That's one of my best. 
and this does seem absurd, and it certainly seems to reveal the basic idea as nonsense. But suppose we recast this closet full of different suits of clothes, just a little, and say, what if God tries out a suit of clothes, and then for some reason best known to him, changes his mind, decides, using this metaphor, that the suit of clothes that he possesses or wears is not the one he wants. In which case, the aforementioned closet full of suits of clothes is sort of a progressive sequence of worlds, picked up, used for a time, and then discarded in favor of an improved one? We might ask at this point, how would the suddenly discarded suit of clothes the suddenly abandoned universe feel, what would it experience? And for us, even more importantly, what change, if any, would the life forms living in that universe experience? Because I have a secret hunch that this exact thing does indeed happen. And I have a keen additional insight that the endless trillions of life forms involved would suppose incorrectly that they had experienced nothing, that no change had taken place. They, as elements of the new suits of clothes, would incorrectly imagine that they had always been worn, always been as they are now were, with complete memories by which to prove the correctness of their subjective impressions. We are accustomed to supposing that all change takes place along the linear time axis, from past to present to future. The present is a accrual of the past and is different from it. The future will accrue from the present on and be different yet. The orthogonal or right angle time axis could exist, a lateral domain in which change takes place, processes occurring sideways in reality, so to speak. This is almost impossible to imagine. How would we perceive such lateral changes? What would we experience? What clues, if we are trying to test out this bizarre theory, should we be on the alert for? In other words, how can change take place outside of linear time at all, in any sense, to any degree. Well, let us consider a favorite topic of Christian thinkers, the topic of eternity. This concept, historically speaking, was one great new idea brought by Christianity to the world. We are pretty sure that eternity exists, but the word eternity refers to something actual, in contrast, say, to the word angels, eternity is simply a state in which you are free and somehow out and above of time. There is no past, present, future. There is just pure ontological being. Eternity is not a word denoting merely a very long time. It is essentially timeless. Well, let me ask this. Are there any changes that take place there, i.e. take place outside of time? Because if you say yes, eternity is not static, 
things happen, then I at once smile knowingly and point out that you have introduced time once more. The concept time simply denotes, or rather posits, a condition or state or stream, whatever in which change occurs. No time, no change. Eternity is static. But if it is static, it is even less than long enduring. It is more like a geometric point, an amplitude of which can be determined along any given line. Viewing my theory about orthogonal or lateral change, I defend myself by saying this. At least it is intellectually less nonsensical than the concept of eternity, and everyone talks about eternity, whether they intend to do anything about it or not. Let me present you with a metaphor. Let us say that there exists this very rich patron of the arts. Every day on the wall of his living room, above his fireplace, his servants hang a new picture. Each day a different masterpiece. And day after day, month after month, each day the used one is removed and replaced by a different and new one. I will call this process change along the linear axis. But now, let us suppose the servants temporarily running out of new replacement pictures. What shall they do in the meantime? They can't just leave the present one hanging. Their employer has decreed that the perpetual replacement, i.e. changing the pictures, is to take place. So they neither allow the current one to remain, nor do they replace it with a new one. Instead, they do a very clever thing. When their employer is not looking, the servants cunningly alter the picture already on the wall. They paint out a tree here. They paint a little girl there. They add this. They obliterate that. They make the same painting different and in a sense new. But as I'm sure you can see, not new in the sense of replacing it. The employer enters his living room after dinner, seats himself facing his fireplace and contemplates what should be, according to his expectations, a new picture. What does he see? It certainly isn't what he saw previously, but also it isn't somehow. And here we must come to a very sympathetic with this perhaps somewhat stupid man, because we can virtually see his brain circuits are striving to understand. His brain circuits are saying, yes, it is a new picture. It is not the same one as yesterday, but also it is the same one, I think. I feel on a very deep intuitive basis, I feel that somehow I've seen it before. I seem to remember a tree, although, and there is no tree. Now perhaps if we extrapolate from this man's perceptual and mentational confusion to the theoretical point I was making about lateral change, you can get a better idea of what I mean. Perhaps you can, to at least a degree, see that although what I am talking about may not exist, my concept may be fictional, it could exist, it is not intellectually self-contradictory. As a science fiction writer, I gravitate towards such ideas as this. We in the field, of course, 
know this idea as the alternate universe theme. Some of you, I am sure, know that my novel, The Man in the High Castle, utilized this theme. There was an alternate world in which Germany and Japan and Italy won World War II. At one point in the novel, Mr. Tagomi, the protagonist, somehow is carried over into our world in which the Axis powers lost. He remained in our world only a short time and scuttled in fright back to his own universe as soon as he glimpsed or understood what had happened and thought no more of it after that. It had been for him a thoroughly unpleasant experience since being Japanese it was for him a worse universe than his customary one. For a Jew, however, it would have been infinitely better for obvious reasons. In The Man in the High Castle, I give no real explanation as to how or why Mr. Tagomi slid across into our universe. He simply sat in a park and scrutinized a piece of modern abstract handmade jewelry, sat and studied it on and on, and when he looked up, he was in another universe. I didn't explain how or why this happened because I don't know. And I would defy anyone, writer, reader, or critic, to give a so-called explanation. There cannot be one, because of course, as we all know, such a concept is merely a fictional premise. None of us in our right minds entertains for even an instant the notion of that such alternate universes exist in any actual sense. But, let us say, just for fun, that they do. Then, if they do, how are they linked to each other? If in fact they are, or would be, linked, if you drew a map of them, showing their locations, what would that map look like? For instance, and I think this is a very important question, and they're absolutely separate from one another, or do they overlap? Because if they overlap, then such problems as where do they exist and how do you get from one to the next admit the possible solution. I am saying simply, if they do indeed exist, and if they do indeed overlap, then we may in some literal, very real sense inhabit several of them to various degrees at any given time. And although we all see one another as living humans walking about and talking and acting, some of us may inhabit relatively greater amounts of, say, Universe 1 than the other people do. And some of us may inhabit a relatively greater amount of Universe 2 track to instead and so on it may not merely be that our subjective impressions of the world differ but they may be overlapping a superimposition of a number of worlds that so objectively not subjectively our worlds may differ our perceptions differ as a result of this and i want to add this statement at this point which i find to be a fascinating concept it may be that some of these superimposed worlds are passing out of existence along the lateral time I spoke of. And some are in the process of moving toward greater rather than lesser actualization. These processes would occur simultaneously and not all in linear time. These kind of processes we are talking about here is a transformation kind of metamorphosis invisibly achieved but 
very real and very important. Contemplating this possibility of a lateral arrangement of worlds, a plurality of overlapping Earths along whose linking axis a person can somehow move, can travel in a mysterious way from worst to fair to good to excellent. Contemplating this in theological terms, perhaps we could say that herewith we suddenly decipher the elliptical utterances that Christ expressed regarding the kingdom of God, specifically where it is located. He seems to have given contradictory and puzzling answers, but suppose, just suppose for an instant, that the cause of the perplexity lay not in any desire on his part to baffle or to hide, but in the possible. Uh, in the inadequacy of the question, my kingdom is not of this world, he reported to have said, the kingdom is within you, or possibly it is among you. I put before you now the notion, which I personally find very exciting, that he may have had in mind that which I speak of as the lateral axis of overlapping realms that contain among them a spectrum of aspects ranging from the unspeakably malignant to the beautiful. And Christ was saying over and over again that there really are many objective realms somehow related and somehow bridgeable by living, not dead men. And that the most wondrous of these worlds was just as subjectively viewing one world. The kingdom was and is in an actual different place, at the opposite end of the continua, starting with slavery and utter pain. It was his mission to teach his disciples the secret of crossing along this orthogonal path. He did not merely report what lay there. He taught the method of getting there, but tragically the secret was lost. The enemy of the Roman authority crushed it, and so we do not have it. But perhaps we can refind it, since we know that there such a secret exists. This would account for the apparent contradictions regarding the question as to whether the just kingdom is ever to be established here on earth, or whether it is a place or state we go after death. I am sure I don't have to tell you that this issue has been a fundamental one and an unresolved one throughout the history of Christianity. Christ and St. Paul both seem to say empathetically that an actual breaking through into time into our world by the host of God will unexpectedly occur thereupon after some exciting drama, a thousand year paradise, a rightful kingdom will be established at least for those who have done their homework and chores and generally paid attention, have not gone to sleep. As one parable puts it, we are enjoined repeatedly in the New Testament to be vigilant, that the Christian is always day and there is always light by which he can be seen as the event comes. See this event? Does that imply that many persons who are somehow asleep or blind or not vigilant, they will not see it even though it occurs? Consider the significance that can be assigned to these notions. The kingdom will come here unexpectedly 
the rightful, faithful shall see it. But for them, it is always daytime. But for the others, what seems expressed here is the paradoxical but enthralling thought that and hear this and ponder. The kingdom where it's established here would not be visible to those outside it. I offer that idea in modern times. What is meant that is some of us will travel laterally to the best world and some will not. They will remain stuck along the lateral axis, which means that for them the kingdom did not come, not in their alternate world, and yet in the meantime it did come in ours. So it comes and yet does not come. Amazing. Please ask yourself, what event signals the establishment or re-establishment of the kingdom? Of course, it is nothing other than the second advent, the return of the king himself, following my reasoning as to the existence of worlds along the lateral axis, one could reason certainly the second coming has not taken place yet, or at least not along this track, in this universe. But then one could speculate logically, but perhaps it came exactly as stipulated in the New Testament during the lifetime of those living then, back in the apostolic, apostolic age. I enjoy, I find fascinating this concept. What an idea for a novel, an alternate earth in which the Paryusia took place, say around AD 70, or say during the medieval period, say at the time of the Catharist Crusades. How neat an idea for an alternate world novel. The protagonist somehow is transported from this or our universe in which the second coming did not take place or has not taken place is transported to one in which it occurred centuries ago. But if you have followed my conjectures about the overlapping of these alternate worlds and you sense as I do the possibility that there are three, there may be 30 or 3,000 of them, and that some of us live in this one and others of us in another one and others in others, and that events in one track cannot be perceived by persons not in that track. Well, let me say what I want to say and be done with it. I think I once experienced a track in which the Savior returned, but I experienced it just very briefly. I am not there now, and I'm not sure I ever was. Certainly, I may never be again. I grieve for that loss, but loss it is. Somehow I moved laterally and then fell back and then it was gone a vanished mountain and a stream the sounds of bells all gone now for me entirely gone i in my stories and novels often write about counterfeit worlds semi-real worlds as well as deranged private worlds inhabited often by just one person while, meantime, the other characters remain in their own worlds throughout or are somehow drawn into one of the peculiar worlds. This theme occurs in the corpus of my 27 years of writing 
At no time did I have the theoretical or conscious explanation for my preoccupation with these pluriform pseudo-worlds. But now I think I understand. What I was sensing was the manifold of partially actualized realities lying tangent to what evidently is the most actualized one, the one that the majority of us, by consensus gentium, general consent, agree on. Although originally I pre-assumed that these differences between these worlds was caused entirely by the subjectivity of the various human viewpoints, it did not take me long to open the question as to whether it might not be more than that. That, in fact, plural realities did exist, superimposed onto one another like so many film transparencies. What I still do not grasp, however, is that one reality out of the many becomes actualized in a contradistinction to the others. Perhaps none does, or perhaps, again, it hangs on an agreement and viewpoint by a sufficiency of people, more likely the Matrix world. The one with the true core of being is determined by the programmer. He or it articulates, prints out, so to speak, the matrix choice and fuses it with the actual substance, the core or essence of reality, that which receives or attains it, and to what agree that is within the purview of the programmer. The selection and reselection are part of a general creativity of world building, which seems to be its or his task. A problem, perhaps, which he or it is running, which is to say the process of solving. The problem solving by means of reprogramming variables along the linear time axis of our universe, thereby generating branched off lateral worlds. I have the impression that the metaphor of the chessboard is especially useful in evaluating how all of this can be, in fact, must be. Across from the programmer, reprogrammer, sits counter-eternity, whom Joseph Campbell calls the dark counterplayer. God, the programmer-reprogrammer, is not making his moves of improvement against inert matter. He is dealing with a cunning opponent. Let us say that on the game board, our universe and space-time, the dark counterplayer makes a move. He sets up a reality situation. Being the dark player, the outcome of his desires constitutes what we experience as evil, non-growth, the power of lie, death, and decay of forms, the prison of immutable cause and effect. But the reprogrammer has already laid down his response. It has already happened, these moves on his part. The printout, which we undergo as historic events, passes through a stages of dialectical interaction, thesis and antithesis. As the forces of two players mingle, evidently some synthesis falls to the dark counterplayer, and yet they do not, by virtue of the fact that in advance our great advocate selected variables, the alteration of which brings final victory to him. And winning each sequence in term, he claims some of us we who participate in the sequence, this is why instinctively people pray, Le Pierre a mi domine, which decodes to mean, 
extricate me, programmer, as you achieve one victory after another. Include me in that triumph. Move me along the lateral axis so that I am not left out. What we sense as being left out means remaining under the jurisdiction or falling prey to the malignant power. But that malignant power, for all its gill, has already lost even as it wins. For in some way the counterplayer is blind, and so the programmer reprogrammer possesses an advantage. The great medieval Arabic philosopher Avicenna wrote that God does not see time as we do, i.e., for him there is no past nor present nor future. Now supposing Avicenna is correct, let us imagine a situation in which God, from whatever vantage point he exists, decides to intervene into our space-time world, i.e. break through his timeless realm into human history. But if there is only omnipresent reality from this viewpoint, then he can easily break through into what for us is the past as he can break through into what for us is the present or the future. It is exactly like a chess player gazing down at the chessboard. He can move any of his pieces that he wishes. Following Avicenna's reasoning, we can say that God, in desiring, for example, to bring out the second advent, need not limit the event to our present or future. He can breach our past, in other words, change our past history. He can cause it to have happened already, and this would be true for any change he wished to make, large or small. For instance, suppose an event in our year AD 1970 does not meet with God's idea of how it all should go. He can obliterate it or tinker with it, improve it, whatever he wishes, even at a prior point in linear time. This is his advantage. I submit to you that such alterations, the creation or selection of the so-called alternate presence is continually taking place. The very fact that we can conceptually deal with this notion that is entertained as an idea is a first step in discerning such processes themselves. But I doubt if we will ever be able to, in any real fashion, to demonstrate, to scientifically prove that such lateral change processes do occur. Probably all we would have to do would be to go on Vestiges of memory, fleeting impressions, dreams, nebulous intuitions that somehow things had been different in some way and not long ago, but now. We might reflexively reach for a light switch in the bathroom only to discover that it was, always had been, in another place entirely. We might reach for the air vent in our car where... There was no air vent, a reflex left over from a previous present, still active of a subcortical level. We might dream of peoples and places we had never seen, as vividly as we'd seen them, actually known them, but we would not know what to make of this, assuming we took time to ponder it at all. One very pronounced impression would probably occur to us, to many of us, again and again, and always without explanation, the acute, absolute sensation that we had done once before what we were here just about to do previously. Now, that we speak to a life particular moment or situation, 
But in what sense would it be called previously, since only the present, not the past, was evidently involved? We would have the overwhelming impression that we are reliving the present, perhaps in precisely the same way, hearing the same words, saying the same words, I submit that these impressions are valid and significant, and I will say even this, such an impression is a clue that some past time point, a variable was changed, reprogrammed, as it were, and that because of this, an alternate world branched off, became actualized instead of the prior one, and that, in fact, in literal fact, we are once more living this particular segment of linear time. A breaching, a tinkering, a change had been made, but now in our present, had been made in our past. Evidently, such an alteration would have been a peculiar effect on those persons involved. They would, so to speak, be moved back one square or several squares on the board game that constitutes our reality. Conceivably, this could happen a number of times, affecting any number of people as alternate variables were reprogrammed. We would all go out and live each reprogramming along the subsequent linear time axis. But to the programmer whom he whom we call God, to him the results of the reprogramming would be apparent at once. We are within time, and he is not. Thus, too, this might account for the sensation people get of having past lives. They may well have, but not in the past, previous lives, rather in the present, and perhaps the unending repeated or repeated present, that like a great clock dial in which grand clock hand sweeps in the same circumference forever, with all of us carried along unknowingly, yet dimly suspecting, since at the resolution of every encounter of thesis and antithesis between the dark counterplayer and the divine programmer, a new synthesis is struck off. And since it is possible that each time this happens a lateral world may be generated, and since I conceive that each synthesis or resolution is to some degree a victory by the programmer, each struck off world and sequence must be an improvement upon, not just a prior one, but an improvement over all the latent or merely possible outcomes. It is better, but in no sense perfect, i.e. final. It is merely an improved stage within a process. What I envision clearly is that the programmer is perpetually using the antecedent universe as a gigantic stockpile for each new synthesis, the antecedent universe then possessing the aspect of chaos or anime in relation to an emerging new cosmos. Therefore, we the endless process of the sequential stuck, struck off worlds emerging and being infused with actualization is the negentropic in some way that we cannot see. In my novel Ubik, I present a motion along a retrograde entropic axis in terms of a platonic forms rather than any decay or reversion we normally conceive. Perhaps the normal forward motion along this axis, away from entropy, accruing rather than divesting, is identical with the axis that the axis line that I characterize as lateral, which is to say the orthogonal rather than lineal time. If this is so, the novel Ubik inadvertently contains what would be called a scientific rather than philosophical idea. 
but here I'm only guessing. Still, the fiction writer may have written more than he consciously knew. What blinds us to this hierarchy of evolving form in which new synthesis is that we are unaware of the lesser, unactualized worlds? And this process of interaction continually forming the new obliterates at each stage which came before what at any given present instant we possess of the past is twofold but dubious. We possess external, objective traces of the past embedded in the present, and we possess inner memories. But both are subject to the rule of imperfection, since both are merely bits of reality and not the intact form. What we retain existentially and mentally are therefore inadequate guides. This is implied by the very emergence of the true newness itself. If truly new, it somehow killed the old, that which was, and especially that which did not come to fully be. What we need at this point is to locate, to bring forth as evidence, someone who has managed somehow, it doesn't matter how, really to retain memories of a different present, latent, alternate world impressions, different in some significant way from this. The one that is, at this stage, actualized. According to my theoretical view, it would almost certainly be memories of a worse world than this. For it is not reasonable that God, the programmer and reprogrammer, would substitute a worst world in terms of freedom or beauty or love or order or healthiness. By any standard that we know, when a mechanic works on your malfunctioning car, he does not damage it further. When a writer creates a second draft of a novel, he does not debase it further but strives to improve it. I suppose it could be argued in a strictly theoretical way that God might be evil or insane and in fact substitute a worse world for a better one, but frankly I cannot take that idea seriously. Let us pass over it. So let us ask, does any one of us remember in any dim fashion a worse earth circa 1977 than this? Have you seen young men seen visions and our old men dream dreams? Nightmare dreams specifically about a world of enslavement and evil, of prisons and jailers and ubiquitous police? I have. I wrote out the dreams in my novel after novel, story after story, to name two in which this prior ugly present obtained. Most clearly, I cite The Man of the High Castle and my 1974 novel about the United States as a police state called Flow My Tears, the policeman said. I'm going to be very candid with you. I wrote both these novels based on fragmentary residual memories of such a horrid slave state world, or perhaps the term world is the wrong one, and I should say United States, since both novels I was writing about my own country. In The Man in the High Castle, there is a novelist, Hawthorne Abedin, or Ab Abinson, who has written an alternate world novel in which Germany, Italy, and Japan lost World War II. At the conclusion of The Man in the High Castle, a woman appears at Abinson's door and to tell him that what he does not know, that his novel is true, the Axis powers did indeed lose the war. The irony of this ending, Abinson finding out what he had supposed to be pure fiction spun out of his imagination was in fact true. 
The irony is this, that my own supposed imaginative work, The Man of the High Castle, is not fiction, or rather is fiction now, only now, thank God. But there is an alternate world, there was an alternate world, a previous present, in which a particular time track actualized, actualized and then abolished due to intervention at some prior date. I am sure as you hear this, as you hear me say this, you do not really believe me or even believe that I believe it myself. But nevertheless, it is true. I retain memories of that other world. That is why you will find it again described in my later novel, Flow My Tears, that Flow My Tears. The world of Flow My Tears is an actual or rather once actual alternate world. And I remember it in detail. I do not know who else does. Maybe no one else does. Perhaps all of you were always, always have been here. But I was not. In March 1974, I began to remember consciously, rather than merely subconsciously, that black iron prison police state world. Upon consciously remembering it, I did not need to write about it because I have always been writing about it. Nonetheless, my amazement was great to remember consciously, suddenly, that it was so, as I'm sure you can imagine. Put yourself in my place. In novel after novel, story after story, after a 25-year period, I wrote repeatedly about a particular other landscape, a dreadful one. In March 1974, I understood in my writing why. I continually reverted to an awareness and intimation of that one particular world. I had good reason. My novels and stories were, without my realizing it, consciously autobiographical. It was this return of memory, the most extraordinary experience of my life, or rather I should say lives, since I had at least two, one there and subsequently one here, where we are now. I can tell you what caused me to remember. In late February 1974, I was given sodium pentothal for the extraction of an impacted wisdom tooth. Later that day, back home again, uh, but still deeply under the influence of the sodium pentothal, I had a short, acute flash of recovered memory. In one instant, I caught it all, but immediately rejected it, rejected it, however, with the realization that I had retreated in that way of buried memories and it was authentic. Then, in mid-March, the corpus of memories, whole, intact, began to return. You are free to believe me or free to disbelieve, but please take my word on it that I am not joking. This is very serious, a matter of importance. I am sure that the very least of you will agree that for me even to claim this in itself is amazing. Often people claim to remember past lives. I claim to remember a different, very different present life. I know of no one who has ever made this claim before, but I rather suspect that my experience is not unique. What perhaps is unique is the fact that I am willing to talk about it. Now, if you have followed me this far, I would like you to be kindly enough to dispose to go a little further with me. I would like to share something with you I knew, retrieved along with the blocked off memories. In March 1974, the reprogrammed variables tinkered with the back at some earlier date, probably in the late 40s. In March 1974, the payoff, the results of at least one and possibly more of the reprogrammed variables lying along the linear time in our past set in. What happened between March and August 1974 was a result of 
at least one reprogrammed variable laid down perhaps 30 years before, setting into motion a thread of change that cultivated in what I am sure you will admit was a spectacularly important and unique historical event. The forced removal from office of the President of the United States, Richard Nixon, as well as those associated with him, in the alternate world that I remembered the Civil Rights Movement, the anti-war movement of the 60s had failed, and evidently the mid-70s Nixon was not removed from power, that which opposed him if indeed anything existed or that could was inadequate. Therefore, one or more of these factors tending toward the destruction of the entrenched tyrannical power had retroactively to us come to be introduced. The scales 30 years later in 1977 got tipped. Examine the text of Flow My Tears and keeping in mind that it was written in 1970 and published in 1974, make effort to construct the previous events that would have taken place or not take place to account for the world depicted as the novel lying slightly in the future. One small but critical theme is alluded to twice, I believe, in Flow My Tears. It is it has to do with Nixon in the future world of Flow My Tears in the dreadful slave state that exists as evidently as has existed for decades. Richard Nixon is remembered as an exalted heroic leader, referred to, in fact, as the second only begotten son of God. It is evident from this and many other clues that Flow My Tears deals with not our future, but the future of a present world alternate to our own. Blacks, by the time Flow My Tears takes place, had become ecologically rarity, protected as the wild whooping cranes. In the novel, one rarely sees blacks on the street of the United States. But the year in which Flow My Tears takes place, only 11 years from now, in October 1988, Obviously, the fascist genocide against blacks in the United States in my novel begun long before 1977. A number of readers have pointed this out to me. One of them even pointed out carefully reading Flow My Tears not only indicates that the society depicted the U.S. police state of 1988 had become an alternate world novel, but this reader pointed out that mysteriously at the very end of the novel, the protagonist, Felix Buckman, appears somehow to have slipped over into a different world, one of which blacks were not exterminated. Early in the novel, it is stipulated that a black couple is allowed to, by law, to bear only one single child. Yet, at the end of the novel, the black man at the all-night gas station proudly gets uh, out his wallet and shows policeman General Buckman photographs of his three children. The open manner in which the black man shows the pictures to a perfect stranger indicates that for some weird and unexplained reason, it is no longer illegal for a black couple to have several children. Somehow, just as Mr. Tagomi slipped over briefly into her alternate present, General Buckman in Flow My Tears did the same thing. It is evident in the text of Flow My Tears and where the, president, uh, the police general slipped over. It was just before he landed his flying vehicle at all-night gas station and encountered, hugged, in fact, the black man, the slipover, which was to say the movement in which the absolutely repressive world of the bulk of the novel faded out, took place during the interval in which General Buckman experienced a strange dream about a king-like king -like old man with white-wooled beard wearing robes and a helmet and leading a posse of similarly helmeted robed knights, this king 
and these helmeted knights appearing in the rural world of the farmhouse in Pastureland where General Buckman had lived as a boy. This dream, I think, was a graphic depiction of General Buckman's mind and the transformation taking place. Objectively, it was a kind of inner analog that was happening outside of his entire world. This accounts, f this accounts for the changed Buckman, the very different police general who lands at the all-night gas station and draws the heart with an arrow piercing it, giving, him, giving the piece of paper with its drawing to the black man as a communication of love. Buckman at the gas station is encountering the black stranger is not the same Buckman who appeared earlier throughout the book. The transformation is complete, but he is unaware of it. Only Jason Taverner, the once famous television personality who woke up one day to find himself in a world he had who had never heard of him. Only Taverner, with his mysteriously taken away popularity, seeps back, understands that several alternate alternate realities two upon a cursory reading but at least three if the ending is studied scrupulously that only Jason Taverner remembers this is the whole basic plot of the novel one morning Jason Taverner popular TV and recording star wakes up in a flea bag dingy hotel to find all his identification papers gone and worse yet finds that no one has ever heard of him the basic plot is that for the same arcane reason that the entire population of the United States has, in one instant of linear time, completely and collectively forgotten a man whose face was covering Time magazine, should be a face virtually every reader would identify without effort. In this novel, I am saying the entire population of a large country, a continent sized country can wake up one morning having entirely forgotten something they all previously knew and none of them is the wiser in the novel it is a popular tv and recording star whom they have forgotten which is of importance really owned to that particular star or former star but my hypothesis is presented here nonetheless in a disguised form because if an entire country can overnight forget one thing they all know they can forget other things, more important things, in fact, overwhelmingly important things. I am writing about amnesia on the part of millions of people, of so to speak, fake memories lied down. This theme of faked memories is a constant thread in my writings over the years. It was also Van Gogh's. And yet, can one contemplate this as a serious possibility, something that could actually happen? Who of us actually asked himself that? I did not ask myself that prior to March 1974. I include myself. You will recall that I pointed out that after Police General Buckman slipped over into a better world, he underwent an interchange, appropriate to the qualities of the better world, the more just, the more living, the warmer world in which the tyranny of the police apparatus was already beginning to fade away, as would a dream upon the awakening of the dreamer. In March 1974, when I regained my buried memories, a process called in Greek anam anamnesis, which literally means the loss of forgetfulness rather than a merely remembering. 
Upon those memories re-entering consciousness, I, like General Buckman, underwent a personality change. Like his, it was a fundamental, but at the same time subtle. It was me, yet it was not me. I noticed it, mostly in small ways, things I should have remembered but did not, things I did remember, and ah, what things those were but should not have. Evidently, this had been my personality in what I call Track A. You may be interested in one aspect of my restored memories that strikes me as the most astonishing. In the previous alternate present in Track A, Christianity was illegal as it had been 2,000 years ago. At its inception, it was regarded as subversive and revolutionary, and, let me add, this appraisal by the police authorities was correct. It took me almost two weeks after the return of my memories and my life in Track A to rid myself of the overpowering impression that all references to Christ, all sacerdotal acts, had to be veiled in absolute secrecy. But historically, this fits the pattern of a fascist takeover, especially those along Nazi lines. They did so regard Christianity, and had they attained a victory in the war, this surely would have been their policy in that portion of the United States that they controlled. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses under the Nazis were gassed in the concentration camps along with the Jews and Gypsies. They were placed right up at the top of the list, and in the other modern totalitarian state, for the same reason, it is banned and its members persecuted. I mean, of course, the USSR. The three great tyrannical states in history that have murdered their domestic Christian populations, Rome, the Third Reich, and the USSR, are, from an objective standpoint, three manifestations of a single matrix. Your own personal beliefs about religion are not an issue here. What is an issue is a historic fact, and therefore I ask you to ponder objectively what the overwhelming fear I felt regarding Christian rights and protestations of a faith signifies about the Track A society abruptly remembered. It is a decisive clue about Track A. It tells us how radically different it was. I would like you, if you have gone this far, to accept my statements about my other memories that have, under the sodium pentothal, returned. It was a prison. It was dreadful. We overthrew it, just as we overthrew the Nixon tyranny. But it was far more cruel, incredibly so, and there was a great battle and loss of life. And please, let me add one other fact, maybe objectively, unimportant, but to me interesting nonetheless. It was in February of 1974 that my blocked-off memories of Track A returned, and it was in February 1974 that Flow My Tears was finally, after two years, delay published. It was almost as if the release of the novel, which had been delayed so long, meant that in a certain sense, it was all right for me to remember. But until then, it was better that I did not. 
Why that would be, I do not know. But I have the impression that the memories were not to come to the surface until the material had been published, very sincerely on the author's part, as what he believed to be fiction. Perhaps had I known, I would have been too frightened to write the novel. Or perhaps would I have shot my mouth off and somehow interfered with the effectiveness of these several books, whatever effectiveness that might be or was. I don't even claim that there was an intended effectiveness. Perhaps there was none at all. But if there was one, and I repeat the word if, emphatically, it was almost certainly to stir subliminal memories and readers back to dim life, not a conscious life, not a entering consciousness as in my own case, but to recall them on a deep and profound, albeit unconscious level. What life as a police tyranny is like, and how vital it is now or then, at any time, along any track, to defeat it. In March 1974, the really crucial moves to dispose Nixon were beginning. In August, five months later, they proved successful. Although these reprogrammings, this intervention in our present, may have been designed more to affect a future continuum rather than our own. As I said at the beginning, ideas seem to have a life of their own. They appear to seize on people and make use of them. The idea that seized me 27 years ago and never let go of this is any society in which people meddle in other people's business is not a good society. And a state in which the government knows more about you than you know more about yourself, as is expressed in Flow My Tears, is a state that must be overthrown. It may be a theocracy, a fascist corporate state, a reactionary monopolistic capitalism, or a centralistic socialism. That aspect does not matter. And I am saying not merely it can happen here, meaning the United States, but rather it did happen here. I remember. I was one of the secret Christians who fought it and to at least some extent help overthrow it. And I am very proud of that. Very proud of myself in time of track A. But there is unfortunately a somber intimation that accompanies my pride as to my work there. I think that in the previous world, I did not live past March of 1974. I fell victim to a police trap, a net, or a mesh. However, in this one, which I will call track B, this reality, I had better luck. But we fought here in this track, a much lighter tyranny, a far stupider one. Or perhaps we had assistance. The interior reprogramming of one or more historic variables came to our rescue. And sometimes I think, and this is of course pure speculation, a happy fantasy of my own soul, that because of what we accomplished there, or anyhow attempted to accomplish, and very bravely, we who were directly involved were allowed to live on here in track B. This gracious gift serves to delineate for us, for me at least, some aspects of the programmer. It causes me to comprehend him after a fashion. I think we cannot 
know what he is, but we can experience this functioning and so can ask, what does he resemble? Not what is he, but rather what is he like? First and foremost, he controls the objects, processes, and events in our space-time world. This is, for us, the primary aspect, although intrinsically he may possess aspects of a vaster magnitude, but of less applicability to us. I have spoken of myself as a reprogrammed variable, and I have spoken of him as the programmer and reprogrammer, during a short period of time in March 1974, at the moment in which I was resynthesized, I was aware perceptually. Which is to say, aware in an external way of his presence. At that time, I had no idea what I was seeing. It resembled plasmic energy. It had colors. It moved fast, collecting and dispersing. But what it was, what he was, I am not sure, even now. Except I can tell you that he had simulated normal objects and their processes so as to copy them in such an artful way as to make himself invisible within them. As the Ventantist put it, he was the fire within the flint, the razor within the case, Later research showed me that in terms of group cultural experience, the name Brahman has been given to this omnipresent, eminent entity. I quote a fragment of an American poem, Brahma, by Emerson. It conveys what I experienced. They reckon I'll who leave me out. Sorry, they reckon ill who leave me out. When me they fly, I am the wings. I am the doubter and the doubt. I am the hymn the Brahmin sings. By this I mean that during that short period, a matter of hours or perhaps a day, I was aware of nothing, but that was not the programmer. All the things in our pluriform world were segments or subsections of him. Some were at least by many moved and did so, like the portions of a breathing organism that inhaled, exhaled, grew, changed, evolved towards some final state that by its absolute wisdom it had chosen for itself. And I mean to say, I experienced it as self-creating dependent on nothing outside it, because very simply, there was nothing outside it. As I saw this, I felt keenly that through all of the years of my life, I had literally been blind. I remember saying over and over to my wife, I've regained my sight, I can see again. It seemed to me that up until that moment, I had been merely guessing as to the nature of reality around me. I understood that I had not acquired a new faculty of perception, but had rather regained an old one. For a day or so I saw, as we all once had, 
thousands of years ago. But how had we come to lose sight? This superior I, the morphology must still be present in us, not only latent, otherwise I would have not reacquired it even briefly. This puzzles me yet. How was it that for 46 years I did not truly see but only guessed at the nature of our world and then briefly did see but soon after lost that sight and became semi-blind again? That interval in which I actually saw was evidently the interval in which the programmer was reworking me. He had moved forward as palpably sentient and alive. As set to ground, he had disclosed himself. Thus it was said that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are revealed religions. Our God is the Deus Abscontius, Abscontidus, the hidden God. But why? Why is it necessary that we be deceived regarding the nature of our reality? Why was he cloaked himself as a plurality of unrelated objects and his movements as a plurality of chance processes? All the changes and all the permutations of reality that we see are expressions of this purposeful growing and unfolding of this single entelechy. It is a plant a flower, an opening rose. It is a humming hive of bees. It is music, a kind of singing. Obviously, I saw the programmer as he really is, as he really behaves, only because he had seized on me to reshape me. So I say, I know why I saw him, but I cannot say. I know why I do not see him now, nor why anyone else does not. Do we collectively dwell in a kind of laser hologram, real creatures in a manufactured quasi-world, a stage set within whose artifacts and creatures a mind moves that is determined to remain unknown? A newspaper article about this speech could well be titled, Author claims to have seen God but can't give account of what he saw. If I considered the term by which I designate him, the programmer and reprogrammer, perhaps I can extract from that a partial answer. I call him what I call him because that was what I witnessed him doing. He had previously programmed the lives here, but now was altering one or more crucial factors, this in the service of completing a structure or plan. I reason along these lines. A human scientist who operates a computer does not bias nor warp, does not prejudice the outcome of his calculations. A human ethnologist does not allow himself to contaminate his own findings by participating in the culture he studies, which is to say... In certain kinds of endeavors, it is essential that the observer remain occluded off from which what he observes. There is nothing malign about this, no sinister deception. It is merely necessary, if indeed we are collectively 
being moved along desired paths towards a desired outcome, the entity that sets us in motion along those lines, that entity which not only desires that particular outcome, but that wills that outcome, he must not enter into palpably, or the outcome will be aborted. What then we must turn our attention to is not the programmer, but the events of the programmed. Concealed through the former is, the latter will confront us. We are involved in it. In fact, we are instruments by which it is accomplished. There is no doubt in my mind as to the larger historic purpose of the reprogramming that paid off so spectacularly and gloriously in 1974. Currently, I am writing a novel about it. The novel is called Valis. The letters standing for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. In the novel, a government researcher who is very gifted but a little crazy formulates a hypothesis that declares that located somewhere in our world there exists a mimicking organism of high intelligence. It is so successfully mimics natural objects and processes that humans are routinely unaware of it. When, due to a chance of exceptional circumstances, a human does not perceive it, he simply calls it God and lets it go at that. In my novel, however, the government researcher is determined to treat his vast, intelligent, mimicking entity the way a scientist would treat anything under scrutiny. His problem is, however, that by his own hypothesis, he cannot detect the entity. Certainly a frustrating experience for him. But also in my novel, I write about another person unknown to this government researcher, that person that has been having unusual experiences for which he has no theory. He has, in fact, been encountering Vallis, who is in the process of reprogramming him. The two characters possesses between them the whole truth, the correct but unstable hypothesis by one, the unexplained experiences by the other, and it is this other man, the non-scientific person, whom I identify with because he, like me, he is the beginning to retrieve blocked-off memories from another world. Memories he cannot account for, but he has no theory, none at all. In the novel, I appear myself as a character under my own name. I am a science fiction writer who has accepted a large advance of payment for a yet unwritten novel and who must now come up with a novel before a deadline. I, in the book, I know both these men, Houston Page, the government researcher with the theory, and Nicholas Brady, who is undergoing the unfathomable experiences. I begin to make use out of the material from both. My purpose is merely that of a meeting of contractual deadline, but as I continue to write about Houston Page's theory and Nicholas Brady's experiences, I begin to see that everything fits together. I, in the novel, hold both the key and the lock, and no one else does. You can see, I am sure that this is inevitable. In my novel, Vallis, that eventually Houston Page and Nicholas Brady meet, but this meeting has an odd effect on Houston Page. He, with the theory, Page undergoes a total psychotic breakdown as a result of getting confirmation of his theory. We could then imagine it, but he cannot believe it. In his head, in his 
ingenious theory is disassociated from reality. And this is an intuition which I feel that many of us in Ballas or God or Brahman or the programmer, but if we ever actually encountered it, we would simply could not handle it. It would be like a child driven mad by Christmas. He could sustain hoping and waiting. He could pray. He could wish. He could suppose and imagine and even believe. But the actual manifestation, that is too much for our small circuits. And yet the child grows up and there is a man. And those circuits, they grow too. But to remember a different discarded world and to perceive the great planning mind that achieved that abolition, the unthreading of evil. One thing I really want you to know. I am aware that the claims I am making, claims of having retrieved buried memories of an alternate present and to have perceived the agency responsible for arranging that alteration, these claims can neither be proved nor can they be made into a sound rational in the usual sense of the word. It has taken me over three years to reach the point where I am willing to tell anyone but my closest friends about the experience beginning to back at the vernal equinox of 1974. One of those reasons motivating me to speak about it publicly at last to openly make this claim is a recent encounter I've undergone, which, by the way, bears resemblance to Hawthorne Abenson's experience in The Man of the High Castle with the woman Julia Fink. Julia read Abenson's book about a world in which Germany and Japan and Italy had lost the World War II. And she felt that she should tell him what she comprehended about the book. That final scene at the man in the high castle, I think, has been the source for a similar scene in my later story, Faith of Our Fathers, where the girl Tanya Lee shows up and acquaints the protagonist with the actual reality situation, which is to say that much of this world is delusional and purposefully so. For several years, I had been had the feeling, a growing feeling, that one day a woman would appear to me, a complete stranger to me, would contact me to tell me that she had some information to impart to me, would then appear at my door, just as Julia, Juliana appeared at Abenson's door, and would forthwith, in the gravest possible way, tell me exactly what Julia had told Abenson, that my book, like his, was in a certain real, literal, and physical sense, not fiction, but the truth, precisely, that has recently happened to me. I am speaking of a woman who systematically read each other every novel of mine, more than 30 of them, as well as many of the stories, and she did not appear, and she was a total stranger, and she did inform me of this fact. At first, she was curious to find out if I myself knew, or, if not that, whether I suspected it. The probing between us, the cautious questioning, lasted three weeks. She did not inform me suddenly or immediately, but rather gradually, watching carefully each step of the way, each step along the path of communication and understanding to see my reaction. It was a solemn matter, really, for her to drive 400 miles to visit an author whose many books she had read, books of fiction, and the author's imagination, to tell him that they were superimposed worlds in which we live, not one world only, and that she had 
assert, ascertained that the author in some way was involved with at least one of these worlds, one canceled out at some past time, rewoven and replaced, and most of all, does the author consciously know this? It was a tense but joyful moment when she reached the point where she could speak candidly, that point where it did not arrive in our encounter until she was certain that I could handle it, but I had, three years earlier, posited theoretically that if my retrieved memories were authentic, it was only a matter of time before a contact and cautious, guarded, probing someone would occur. Initiated by a person who had read many of my books and for some reason or another deduced the actual situation, I mean knew what the significant information was that the books and stories carried. She knew from my novels and stories which world I had experienced, which of the many which she could not determine until I told her that it was in February of 1975 I had passed across into a third alternate present, track C, we shall call it. And this was the one of the garden or park of peace and beauty, a world superior to ours rising into existence. I could then speak to her of three rather than two worlds, the black iron prison, which had been our intermediate world in which Oppression and war exist, but to have a great degree been cast down. And a third alternate world that someday, when the correct variables in our past have been reprogrammed, will materialize as a superimposition onto this one, and within which, as we awaken to it, we shall suppose that we had always lived there. The memory of this intermediate one, like the last of the Black Iron Prison world, eradicated mercifully from our memories. There may be other persons like this woman who have deducted, deduced from evidence in, internal to my writing as well as from their own vestigial memories that the landscape I portray as fictional is or was somehow literally real and that if a grimmer reality could have once occupied the space that our world occupies, it stands to reason that the process of reweaving need not end here. This is not the best of all possible worlds, just as it is not the worst. The woman told me nothing that I did not already know, except that by independently arriving at the same time conclusion, she gave me the courage to speak out, to tell this, but at the same time knowing that as I do, so that in no way none of what I know at least can this presentation be verified. The best thing I can do rather than that is to play the role of the prophet and ancient prophets of such oracles as the Sibyl of Delphi and to talk to a wonderful garden and talk of a wonderful garden much like that which our ancestors are said to have inhabited. In fact, I sometimes imagine it to be exactly the same world, restored as if a false trajectory of our world will eventually die, will eventually be fully corrected, and once more we will be where once many thousands of years ago we lived and were happy. During the brief time I walked about in it, I had 
strong impression that it was our legitimate home that somehow we had lost. The time I spent there was short, about six hours of real elapsed time, but I remember it well. In the novel I wrote with Roger Zelanzi, Deuce Ire, I describe it toward the end, at the point where the curse is lifted from the world by the death and transfiguration of the God of Wrath. What was most amazing to me about this park-like world, this track C, was the non-Christian elements forming the basis of it. It was what my non-Christian training had prepared me for at all. Even when it began to phase out, I still saw sky, I saw land, I saw dark blue smooth water and standing by the edge of the water, a beautiful nude woman whom I recognized as Aphrodite. At that point, this better world had diminished to a mere landscape beyond a golden rectangle doorway. The outline of the doorway pulsed with laser-like light and it grew smaller and was at last, alas, gone from sight. The three-five doorway devouring itself into nothingness, sealing off what had been layered. I have not seen it since, but I had the firm impression that this was the next world, not of the Christians, but the Arcadi of the Greco-Roman pagan world, something older and far more beautiful than that which my own religion can conjure up as lore, to keep us in a state of dutiful morality and faith, what I saw was very old and very lovely. Sky, sea, land, and a beautiful woman, and then nothing. For the door had shut, and I was closed off back here. It was with a bitter sense of loss that I saw it go, saw her go, really, since it all consolated about her. Aphrodite, I discovered when I looked in my Britannica to see what I could learn about her. It was not only the goddess of erotic love and aesthetic beauty, but also the embodiment of the generative force of life itself. Nor was she originally Greek. In the beginning, she had been a Semitic deity, later taken over by the Greeks, who knew a good thing when they saw it. During those treasured hours, what I saw in her was a loveliness that our own religion, Christianity, at least by comparison, lacks an incredible symmetry. The palintonos harmony that Heracleitus wrote of, the perfect tension and balance of forces within the strung lyre that bowed by its stretched strings and appeared perfectly at rest, perfectly at peace, yet the strung lyre is a balanced dynam dynamism, immobile, only because the tensions within it are absolute proportion. This is the quality of the Greek formulation of beauty. The perfection is dynamic within an apparent rest without it. Against the palintonos harmony, the universe plays out other aesthetic principle incorporated in the Grecian lyre. The palintropos harmony, which is the back and forth oscillation of the strings as they are played. I did not see her like this, and perhaps this continual oscillation back and forth is the deeper greater rhythm of the universe things coming into existence and then passing away change rather than a static durability but for a while 
I had seen the perfect space, peace, perfect rest, a past we have lost, but a past returning to us as if by means a long-term oscillation, to be available as our future, in which all lost things shall be restored. There is a fascination and a fascinating passage in the Old Testament in which God says, For I am fashioning a new heaven and a new earth. The memory of the former things will not enter the mind nor come up into the heart. When I read this, when I read this, I think to myself, I believe I know a great secret. When the work of the restoration is completed, we will not even remember the tyrannies, the cruel barbarisms of the earth we inhabited. Not entering the mind means it will mercifully forget. And not coming up into the heart means that the vast body of pain and grief, loss and disappointment within us all will be expunged as if it had never been. I believe that the process is taking place now, has always been taking place, and, mercifully, we are already being permitted to forget that which formerly was, and perhaps in my novels and stories I have done wrong to urge you to remember. that was the full speech unedited from Philip K. Dick in which what he had written to originally read at the science fiction convention in Metz, France. Deep, deep stuff. Wonderful stuff. Amazing stuff true true philosophy articulated in such a way in which so many people have longed and earned yearned to articulate this understanding and feeling to put this concept into dreams to put this concept into deja vus to put this concept into what you have experienced in your life in your reality to put this concept into thought, to lay the seed in your wonderful garden of your wonderful and beautiful mind. My friends, my friends, rest in paradise. Rest in your palm tree paradise, brother, Philip K. Dick. I pay you homage, I respect your works, and I am so glad to have stumbled across your works when I did as they were a divine invasion into my life, seemingly swept me away on my spiritual journey as I traversed the plane. How I came across your work was incredible through doing the research, doing this work, doing the thing, and one of my favorite esoteric researchers talking about the book Valis being his new Bible. That's what he said. And when he said those words, I said, what the fuck is Valis? And there I went down the rabbit hole. And I've never looked back, my friends, to think of all these years of researching the deep, dark craziness of the ether. 
Vallis brought me deeper in it. And Philip K. Dick is a wonderful character in which has helped me and you and I and we and they and them traverse the plains of the unknown. So thank you so much for listening today. And thank you so much, Philip K. Dick, again. Remember, my friends, look up to the sky, look within your heart, look down past your feet, and look into your lovers' and friends' eyes with true demeaning love, with wonderful depth, and give hugs and give grace. Until next time, it is homie Romy. Thank you for listening to Rising from the Ashes.